Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the latest installment of the Ukraine-Russia War Talk podcast. I'm Professor Phillips O'Brien from the University of St. Andrews, and my co-host is... Mykola Beliskov, uh, Senior Analyst at Comeback Alive and Research Fellow at the National Institute for Strategic Studies from Kiev. We're really delighted to be back. We now hope to keep this regular momentum up of a podcast every two weeks. And personally, I'd like to say how grateful I am for everyone who's listened. Through Substack alone, we have now 50,000 downloads of the podcast. And we're also on Buzzsprout and we're, we're spreading on others. So we really have had a very gratifying take up on this and we are determined to press ahead. Uh, as Mikola said, he works with Comeback Alive and we're not ever going to charge for this podcast. We do this because we believe it's important to get news out and analysis out of what is going on in Ukraine. However, if you do want to support our work, we ask you to make donations to Comeback Alive. You can find them online. They're universally trusted across Ukraine as one of the best organizations to provide actual aid to the Ukrainian forces in the field. So please, please, if you like our work, take a look at Comeback Alive and consider making a donation. Now, Mikola, you, you do much more work with Comeback Alive than I do. Do you want to say a little bit about what's happening these days? Well, I just want to raise one issue. So recently we have another raising campaign. We raised more than 200 million grivnas and this amount uh, would be converted into 5,000 kamikaze drones based on first-person view technology. And it's important that we keep going. And that's a kind of provisional measure. So since there is like this discussion in Congress to give this money and so on, but we keep going, we still in fighting and uh, we think how we are going to fight in 2024. So we are very proud that quickly we raised more than 200 million of grivnas and soon they would be converted in this amount of technology that is quite capable and quite instrumental in terms of arresting attempts of Russian advance. I'd like to echo this. And uh, President Zelensky actually said, was it last night or the night before, that, that Ukraine is set to manufacture a million UAVs in 2024. And people said, wow, that sounds like a lot. UAVs are now ubiquitous on the battlefield, that a million actually is not enough, that people are using UAVs in every kind of role, from scouting to attack Really, they are all over the battlefield, and the Ukrainians need as many UAVs, more than a million, that they can get their hands on. This war does seem to be very much one where UAVs are playing a massive role. So this kind of campaign by Come Back Alive, it's really vital that the UAV war in many ways is the most surprising, but one of the most important wars uh, that is actually now going on in Ukraine. As we normally do, we normally go through three stories of big stories of the last two weeks to try and provide an analysis of what is going on. We're going to start on the battlefield today, just looking at what has happened or in many ways what has not happened in the last few weeks. And that is the line has not moved much at all. Indeed, if you look at the main areas of offensive operation by the Russians around Avdivka and others, the line has hardly moved. A Ukrainian commander came out yesterday and said that you know, since October, the Russians might have gained a few kilometers and lost 20,000 soldiers, hundreds of tanks and armored fighting vehicles. It is clear the Russians seem to be doing much more of the attacking now. 
the Ukrainians have dialed back on their offensive operations. I think that's very wise for technological reasons as much as anything else and casualty reasons. But certainly we're in a phase now where the Russians are doing what seems to be a great deal of offensive and have been doing a great deal of offensive operations around the line and gained very, very little in the way of territory and suffered high casualties. From the Ukrainian perspective, Mikola, is this, in a sense, what you expect to see going forward in the next few weeks? Well, as for me, it's natural and it's expected. I mean, it's like the electric connection between offense and defense. So uh, this year started with Russian attempts to advance. We know it peaked in mid-spring without any successes. Then it was Ukrainian turn. And now it's again Russian turn. So it's quite expected, natural that as... Uh, one side offensive peaked, another side tried to advance. So that's the scene that was expected. And yes, we can say that with exception of Krynke, it's, uh, in Kherson region where Ukrainians uh, are trying to keep the bridgehead and in, in meantime to treat Russian reinforcements in all other directions. I mean, Kupiansk, Leman, uh, Bakhmut, uh, Avdiivka, and also these two bulges that appeared in the course of Ukrainian attempts to advance uh, along all these major directions, Russians attempted once. The major word here is attempted once, because as you mentioned, all these attempts, they are mostly in vain. So there is no major breakthrough. Capture of territory is small one. The price is so huge. You can look it around uh, Kupiansk. So the list of the settlements where the fighting is going, it doesn't change. So it is the same Sinkivka, Petropavlivka, and, and all others. So that's what should be expected. It's natural. It's a war. And the major scene is, of course, that However, zero attempts, despite all the price incurred, there is no major advances. And in this case, the logic outlined in Valery's Illusion essay that it's more easier to find enemy concentration of forces and to destroy them instead of doing it on your own. This logic works in Ukrainian favor. And if Russians are so stupid to try to advance, despite lacking some prerequisites for classic advance, so that's zero choice and we're going to make them pay a steep price and here we are. And simultaneously, I just want to emphasize that I just recall this talk we have uh, like a month ago about uh, perspectives of fighting around Krynki. And back at the time, we clearly said that don't expect that much. So limit your expectations. Be careful in terms of expectations. And that is precisely it. So fight is ongoing. We make Russians pay a steep price in attempts to drive us out of this bridgehead. It's without any success. Simultaneously, we are treating Russians in terms of destroying their equipment, artillery, air defense, electronic warfare, and all other things. So this is how things are going on in Russian-Ukrainian war right here, right now. I think that's actually right. I mean, we were both quite skeptical of those who were saying, oh, there might be a big Ukrainian breakthrough on, on the east bank of the Dnipro and they might expand. For reasons of supply, it's really hard to get supplies to large units over a river without a bridge. But also, I think more and more, and I don't want to say the phrase technological imperative, but in many ways, the defensive firepower advantage is even larger than certainly I thought at the beginning of the year. I was a skeptic about frontal assaults anyway in this war. I've always been a skeptic on vehicles being survivable. But really, from what we can see, it is very hard to make advances with vehicles against any kind of prepared position unless you have overwhelming air power or ranged fire capabilities. And if you don't have that, 
there just seem to be so many different ways to destroy vehicles that they can't survive for very long in an offensive capacity. Now, tanks still have a role in a defensive war, but it's very hard to make advances going forward on them. That has been the Ukrainian experience. And what's interesting is the Ukrainians this summer had that experience and then seem to have backed off on it very wisely. You're not pressed ahead with sort of armored advances, which were going to incur and did incur large losses. The Russians, however, keep trying to do it. And this brings up a question. I don't want to put you too much on the spot here, Mikola, but there have been a lot of talk over the last six or seven or eight months about Russian tactical improvement. The Russians are really improving. They're adapting. These are a lot of voices that originally said the Russian army was so great are now trying to say, oh, now we're seeing a lot of Russian adaptation and improvement. But when we see the kind of Russian attacks that we're seeing around Avdivka and when we compare it to, say, what we saw around Bakhmut in the spring, it seems to me that the Russian means of offensive, there are some small tactical changes, but still seems to be one of throwing mass at a problem, be it first a mass of vehicles and then a mass of manpower, and achieves relatively little. What's interesting is I don't see an adjustment. I see in the Ukrainians an adjustment in the counteroffensive when they realize the situation, what they could do and what they couldn't do. But I see the Russians coming back to do much of the same thing over and over again. To me, it's not the sign of a learning military. It's why I'm quite frustrated. I think this is a military that the Ukrainians can defeat if armed properly. Do you see in these Russian attacks along the line any major improvement from, say, what we saw eight months ago in the spring around Bakhmut or before? Well, in general, I would agree with you and with the idea that Russians, as for me, they still hasn't accepted the reality and the fact that with uh, both sides, uh, which technologies they possess and how they apply, it's very difficult to do offensive. And uh, since they are not able to reconcile themselves with this reality, they are paying a steep price for it as paying around of the Yuka. Simultaneously, I can say that, well, we've seen some kind of adjustment, adaptation. Russians are still there learning from their past mistakes, major miscalculations and so on. That's why we've seen defensive preparations. But as for me, when people are talking about the quality of all these adjustments, adaptations, they don't make a difference between adaptations that is okay, that is required for defense, and adaptations that are required and that are necessary for offense. In case of defense, for sure, they proved that they can do it, let's be honest. But in terms of offensive, it's still beyond zero capability. And without like a kind of asymmetric advantage, like ability to freely use air power, which is denied right here, right now, they still don't possess this amount of adaptations, equipment, tactics that would allow them to quickly overwhelm Ukrainian defense. So, yes, they are learning. Yes, they adjusted. It worked for them in defense, but it's not working for them in offense. But, well, uh, when I'm saying it, I'm not making this mistake of overconfidence and so on. So we understand it's a race of adaptation and Russians are learning. Unfortunately, they are learning from Ukrainian experience, especially in a UAV field, because it was Ukrainians who demonstrated how war changed relying on a number of UAVs at a tactical level or it's possible to use first-person view technology UAVs as a kamikaze UAV. So they are learning. In some cases, they have advantages, but it's still not enough. So all their attempts to advance on the conditions, current conditions, without any asymmetric advantage in terms of air power, all their offensives would be futile. 
if Ukraine is supplied with air defense capability and with artillery capability. So that's why, as I said, we need to charge as big price as possible for this Russian unreadiness to accept the fact that offensive is so difficult, challenging and beyond their capability. I think the reality of that is a great segue into the second part of what we want to talk about is Ukrainian strategy going ahead. Essentially, everyone says, oh, Ukraine now has to have a strategy. In many ways, of course, that's right. People need a strategy to win the war. But you also have to adjust to the reality of the warfare that you see. The Ukrainian ultimate strategy is to liberate its territory. That's number one, to liberate all of the territory of Ukraine as recognized in 1991. And that's all of the Crimea, Donetsk and Luhansk, so that all of Ukraine is being liberated is the strategic goal. The issue they face is going forward and making these offensives is very, very difficult, very bloody. And so it's not that easy to come up with an immediate strategy to liberate that territory, particularly if they're being armed in the way that they have been armed. So this is the conundrum Ukraine faces, that it needs to take territory going forward, but it also is operating in a wartime condition where going forward is very, very difficult. And that means, this is you know something we can now get into, Ukrainian strategy has to first and foremost be based about weakening the Russians. Instead of, I think I would say, and turn this over to you, Nicola, for your opinion in a second. Ultimately, if you're going to liberate territory, it's because you're going to have to try and dismantle the Russian war machine. The Russian war machine is you know, very heavy on some numbers of troops. It's, I think, less successful in amount of good equipment going forward. But it's not one you're just going to drive it off the battlefield by making a breakthrough. So Ukrainian strategy has to be based about weakening the Russians. And when it comes to the front line, the best way to do it with the present technological balance between the two, at least for the next few months, is going to be defensive. And it's going to be hope. I mean, I actually I hope the Russians keep attacking. I, I actually think this coming Russian election in March is probably something that will lead Putin to be making a lot of attacks to try and you know get another victory in his mind that he can say to the Russians, aha, look, you know, we're, we are winning this war. Because, by the way, he is boasting now that the war is going in his favor, and yet they still can't take Avdivka. So fundamentally on the front line, for a while... It might even be for more than half of 2024. I think under good aid conditions, Ukraine is going to have to stay on the defensive to really weaken the Russian war machine as much as possible, while at that time trying to gain certain advantages, both in range and in technology. This is where the UAV war becomes about. The, the Ukrainians want to be able to try and push forward in certain areas and innovate and gain an advantage in the use of UAVs, electronic warfare over the battlefield. And that means I think anyone expecting a quick Ukrainian attack or Ukrainian offensive just doesn't understand what this war is. Now, that's my view, Mikola. When I was going to turn it to you, if you're looking at it from the Ukrainian perspective, how do you think the next few months will go? I'd like to start with reminding people that before two brilliant counteroffensive Ukraine managed to conduct in autumn 2022, for half a year we were treating Russians in defense. And since this opportunity when Russians were at weakest point, it was not exploited fully, I mean, at the beginning of autumn. 
2022. So this opportunity was lost. And let's be honest, we need to start from not very beginning, but we need again to start a slow process of changing balance of power. And that's why I want people to keep in mind this lesson of 2022 campaign. So for the first half of a year, we just did active defense. We exploited Russian overconfidence. We exploited Russian stupidity. And only then we laid conditions. And when it was proper, when moment was proper, we strike. And that's the thing that people need to keep in mind. Because uh, as for me, if people think about that in the next half a year, we would be able to do another major offensive. That's a major mistake. And the people are not learning from the experience, what we've seen. In the meantime, I, I agree with you. And actually, I'd like to say again, highlight the fact that since we started discussing this New York Times publication last week about possible Ukrainian military strategy and the major parameters of this piece of this debate, we get to know that is happening beyond closed doors between Ukrainians and Western partners. The major parameters we actually cover is more or less the fact that on the front line, on land, it would be active defense. And simultaneously, idea is raised that Crimea, temporary occupied Crimea, is the weakest point of Russian system of defense. And if a sequence of successful strikes targeting Russian military infrastructure can be conducted, then we can create a major opening. And the campaign to target military sites in Crimea, it's important for two reasons, not for one reason. First, it's freedom of navigation. It's very important for Ukraine, for viability of Ukraine, exporting grain, exporting iron ore, and all other we can export to be as self-sufficient as possible, not to be a burden. And uh, simultaneously, it's also about targeting command and control, warehouses, logistics, and all other things. So the fact that next year, on the ground, Ukraine would switch to active defense. Doesn't mean that there won't be like a big story, like major items destroyed and so on. And it would be a major part of Ukrainian campaign. So I would say two things that we need to look at 2022 as an example, how it should be done, how it's possible to play from strategic defense, so-called, and it's quite successful. The second thing that if it's active defense on the ground, it's not necessarily prevent from proactive approach targeting military sites in temporary occupied Crimea. And the third point, though I said about two points, the third point is that it's possible to discuss future of the strategy without all these details. So that's why more or less what we already discussed, I remember all these discussions, even in September, actually, because we discussed all these Ukrainian strikes targeting the Russian Black Sea Fleet. We already noted that it's very promising thing. And it should be uh, should be done in 2024. And pursuing such a strategy, it would lay conditions for a major push later when conditions arrive. So as for me, that's a very realistic approach. The only thing, of course, is to have two sets of capabilities. One is air defense to deny Russian advantage in air power. They still possess nominal advantage. And another is, of course, artillery, because active defense is ensured by artillery. So you treat your enemy before is able to concentrate the preponderant forces along your front line. So these are two sets of capabilities, very critical one. And I hope people who are making decisions, they don't forget about these two important scenes for next year Ukrainian military strategy. And exactly, I think the reference to 2022 is really important, that the Ukrainians had this success. Not only were they on the defensive for a while and attriting the Russians, 
But they were able to do it because starting in July, for a while, they really had the technological advantage over the Russians in range and accuracy when the HIMARS appeared. And so they got the Russians when the Russians weren't ready for that. The Ukrainians had this range capacity that was able to take out a large number of Russian supply depots, really mess around with Russian logistics, which caused a lot of problems. And and the Russians had to pull everything back. And yeah, the Russians did adjust at that point. But being able to launch an offensive after you have that range advantage and after the Ukrainians were able to do that kind of damage, that's the kind of thing they're going to have to do again. And that's why when I be constantly beat the drum for giving Ukraine the kind of range capacity, and that can be either finish Western systems or help the Ukrainians develop their own drones, you're going to have to have something like that before you're going to have a successful offensive in 2024. And that's why Crimea is important, because Crimea is still mostly, I don't want to say safe for the Russians, that's wrong, but Ukraine only has limited capacity to hit Crimea. It can hit Crimea with some of the storm shadows and scalps that's been given, but they were only a really very small number, and they can hit Crimea with homegrown Ukrainian systems, but that's it. If Ukraine doesn't have the capacity to do a major campaign on Crimea with range systems, it's going to be very hard to launch an offensive or to weaken Russian forces. So they go hand in hand. And that's why Ukraine has to be, I would think, assisted to to launch that kind of attack. Before we move on to the uh, question of air defense and aid, which you talked about there, the Estonians released a very interesting document, Mikola, I know which you've you've read, uh, which is a strategy for Ukraine. And I have huge respect for the Baltic states in their understanding of Russia as an enemy and their understanding of of how the best way is to, to fight the Russians. The Baltics, by the way, were always more sanguine about Ukraine's ability to fight this war than the analytical community in Western Europe and the United States. The Baltics were more, you know, more skeptical of what the Russians can do. They knew the Ukrainians wanted to fight. They didn't underestimate Ukrainian identity and the Ukrainian willingness to you know, stand up for itself. What did you think of that Estonian strategy that was released earlier this week? Well, that's a brilliant document, given the fact that this this debate is ongoing and given escalation management deployed by Biden administration, unfortunately, skeptics, they get some ammo. And it was all people who are saying, what are the guarantees that if we give you some more money, that that would be results. So Estonians said how it should be done and could be done. And I also want to emphasize one thing. It's in the political dimension. It happened during these two weeks we, we've talked. And this is political dimensions that we need to start from. So there was a string of Russian statements from MFA had, from the spokesman of Russian MFA, from Putin himself and so on. And this is also the scene that Estonians describe. So the, the major scene that people need to keep in mind, so it's still the same Putin who... In 2021, in this pseudo-historical essay, said that it's either pro-Russian Ukraine or no Ukraine. So every time we start to talk about the future, we need to keep in mind this very idea that Russians will never reconcile with any other Ukraine except pro-Russian Ukraine. Or otherwise they would try to destroy us what they are actually doing now. So that's the most important thing. And simultaneously, the major idea of this Estonian paper is that the price of action in the end, it's still smaller than price of inaction because they calculated that aid in Ukraine would cost uh, countries of format Rammstein less than 1% of their overall GDP. And it's very important. I, I like this idea that nominally 
Western countries, they possess dozens of times bigger GDP. But the problem is this readiness to translate this hypothetical advantage in actual advantage. And uh, what Estonians did, they give a, a real plan. Because some Republicans, they also give this victory strategy, as they say. But simultaneously, they deny us aid under this give us better strategy. What Estonians did, they did a blueprint that said, give just this money. And that's that's really, really important. And again, people need to keep in mind this political dimension. So Putin is so bruised. It's his biggest failure. I mean, this aggression against Ukraine. And the way they frame it, it clearly indicates that they either try to subjugate Ukraine or to destroy it or combine these two approaches, like slowly turning Ukraine into a dysfunctional state and preparing for another land grab. I'm repeating it constantly because, unfortunately, despite almost two years of bitter fighting, all these Russian statements, acts, there are still some people who entertain this idea of political framework with this regime, with this Russian identity, and that's a major mistake. That's why... We in Ukraine really appreciate the fact that Estonians did a great job, clearly demonstrated that there is a path to victory, despite uh, some people arguing that Ukraine needs to negotiate right here, right now, as there is no other option. There is an option to fight and do it smartly. And the way we're actually discussing it here, I mean, what is Ukrainian strategy, best Ukrainian strategy for 2024? If U.S. intelligence estimates are right of Russian losses, and by the way, U.S. intelligence estimates tend to be quite cautious. They don't overestimate Russian losses. In many ways, if you look at the war so far, they've underestimated Russian losses in real terms. They say the Ukrainians armed in this very imperfect way have already destroyed 90% of the Russian military as existed in on February 23rd, 2022. That's 90% of what was considered the second largest or second most powerful army in the world has been destroyed by only a partially armed Ukraine. The idea that this doesn't show that Ukraine can win if properly armed, as the Estonians are saying, is just barking mad. Of course the Ukrainians can win this war. They need to be armed properly, and that would end the Russian threat for a long time. That already the Russian army has suffered grievous losses, There is an opportunity now to, in a sense, end the Russian threat for a long time to the rest of Europe. The amazing thing is that people don't seem to be grasping it. It doesn't make any sense to me because it seems so obvious that this is an opportunity to provide security and peace for Europe, but that people don't seem to understand it. But yes, the Estonians do, and and thanks to them. But this now brings up this question of how Ukraine is being aided. And I think we were going to focus today, the last part of the podcast, on one of the most successful examples of aid, though, of course, it's one that has to continue, and that is air defense. Now, what we have seen in the last few weeks is a very strong, concerted Russian attempt to attack Ukrainian cities and infrastructure. They've used a range of different systems from a large number of the Shahid UAVs, which is a technology they've received from Iran, to a lot of their own missiles, their calibers, their Kinzals. They've been trying to do what they did last winter, which was shut out Ukrainian power. It's been, by the way, I've heard a very, very cold winter there, Mikola. And yet, on the whole, this year so far, because Ukraine has better air defense in 2023-24 than they did in 2022-23, particularly around Kyiv, where there's Patriot batteries and there's sort of layered air defenses, fewer of the missiles are getting through, and the Ukrainians are protecting their people and their infrastructure far better. 
the big problem that they're going to face is will there be enough ammunition? This is why what happens with the U.S. and Congress is so crucial that Ukrainians are being kept alive by this air defense. They're being protected. Their cities are able to function better, it seems, this winter than last winter. But it comes down to the aid. Is that is that a fair reading? You're obviously in Ukraine, Mikola. How are the air defenses holding up? Well, be honest, when I assessed this winter season, so we anticipated the same level of strikes, especially relying on missiles, on cruise missiles, of air launch, sea launch cruise missiles. But Russians don't dare to do it. I don't know for what kind of reasons. I know the hypothesis, of course, is that they've seen that uh, last year that it's futile. So you can spend uh, hundreds of missiles without any political leverage they want to have. But maybe, of course, they are accumulating, especially missiles, they are waiting for very hypothetical situation. I don't want to see, of course, that there won't be this readiness to provide continuous aid, and then they might try to overwhelm Ukrainian air defense that proved to be quite resilient, quite effective this year. But yes, we first we adjusted in terms of finding ways how not only to intercept Russian Shahids or Iranian supplies, Shahids in Russian hands, but also do it cheaply, because the major problem is that you do it without employing major sophisticated interceptors of surface-to-air missiles. So we managed to do it. And by the way, it's also one of the projects Come Back Alive contributed, because along with one of the Ukrainian big business, we almost accumulated 10 millions of dollars for command and control equipment for this mobile group, spy group that destroyed Shahid. So we, this kind of adjustment, we also demonstrated that employing Kinjal air launch missile against Patriot is futile effort. And I hope that this another success story, because Ukrainian strategy of denying Russian ability to use its nominal advantage of air power, it's one of the major pillars for Ukrainian successful defense thus far, along with employment of artillery. And I hope that people always keep in mind that if, again, Russia might be able to use air power freely, then, of course, it's a major recipe for catastrophe. And I hope people won't allow Russia to use its nominal advantage and to supply Ukraine with all these interceptors that are quite costly one, because the price of two Pax-3 interceptors to Patriot, that might be up to $4 million apiece. But it's worth it, again, because otherwise situation would be a terrible one. And that's why air denial strategy is really important we need to keep Russians piloted aviation from Ukrainian skis and make Russians rely only on UAVs or maybe on missiles we can intercept. So that's the things that we shouldn't take for granted. Because as for me, people, after some time, after major string of Ukrainian success, they take for granted the very successfulness of Ukrainian air denial strategy in particular, and in general, the fact that 80% of Ukrainian territory is functioning as a state despite ongoing war. So don't take for granted this two very important fact. And if aid is provided, if strategy is implemented, and we can lay conditions for the success overall. Absolutely. I mean, Ukraine needs the ammunition to do that. I mean, this is a success, the air defense strategy so far, but it's reliant on Ukraine having the ammunition to keep these systems and hopefully getting more. I mean, the more patriots they could have with the more missiles, the better Ukrainian cities would be defended. I mean, Ukraine doesn't have enough patriots to cover all their major cities by a long way. But it just points out that if Ukraine is given the material, they know how to use it and they can use it effectively to keep the state functioning and keep Ukrainians alive, which is obviously the number one thing going forward is to keep Ukrainians alive. And that is, I think, something that is dear to all of our hearts.
we're coming near the end. Actually, Nicola, I'm going to ask you something, and you, you were, you're not prepared for this, but this is our last podcast before Christmas, so we'd like to really wish all of our listeners who are going to be celebrating a Merry Christmas. Now, Ukraine, when I was there, people were saying, you know, they have now moved over to celebrate Christmas on December 25th as a very strong cultural statement of where they believe you know, Ukrainian roots are European and its future is European. What is Christmas like now in Ukraine in December compared to, say, how it was before February 24th, 2022? Well, Christmas is always about hope, and that is the major thing to keep in mind. And the fact that we switch from 7th of January to 25th, it's a very important thing. We are cutting all the links with Russia. The remaining links, there is very little of them, and for us it's important, and I hope that people that are going to celebrate in Europe, in US, 25th of December, they will recall the major message of Christmas, and the major message is the hope, but it's not just hope passively waiting, it's the hope complemented with action, and that's why, again, we are clear, clear that it's going to be a brute fight. But it's also existential fight, and we understand that the choice is a very small one. Either we persevere and increase chances for the best settlement possible, or it's just complete annihilation, recalling everything that Putin and his lieutenants said. So for us, Christmas is important. Celebrating it on the 25th of December is also important. And I hope people would do it not only just for the sake of celebrating, but returning to the core message of the Christmas. It's about the hope. It's about action. It's about caring for vulnerable, caring for the one under threat, under danger, and right here, right now, it's Ukraine. I couldn't add anything to that. That was brilliant, Mikola. It just seemed to me apt that as we go into Christmas in Ukraine, Ukrainians have really made a statement by having Christmas on December 25th. And it behooves all of us, I think, to recognize that statement and to do our best to help Ukraine through this Christmas and into the future. So thanks, everyone, for listening. We wish you a Merry Christmas. If you do want to make a gift to help Ukraine, you could do us a favor by giving your Christmas gift to come back alive. But stay well yourself and we will record another podcast in early January so that's it from me Mikola if you want to say goodbye we will then end our podcast for 2023 Merry Christmas to every person of goodwill and we are definitely going to continue it and I hope people enjoy listening to it and at least get some evidence that open source analytics is possible and we are continuing to go and do fighting and do analyzing war and providing suggestions how it should be done in the best possible way because the stakes are high and definitely stay tuned it was lovely podcast since september 2023 and i'm sure that we'll continue to provide people with alternative point of view to balance all different opinions and a lot of speculations unfortunately Yes, and that's well said. So goodbye, everyone. Merry Christmas. And the Ukraine-Russia War podcast will be back in early January of 2024. Stay well.